Job chapter, chapter 30. Job chapter 30. Now we're going to be picking up today, as you're turning there, I'll, I'll just remind you, we're picking up today in the book of Job. We've been in the book of Job for a while, and we took a brief break, but today I'm going to be doing a little bit of reviewing, and then uh, we'll jump into Job chapter 30. So Job 30, I'll, I'll read verses 9 to 15, and then we'll pray, and then I'll, we'll, we'll jump right in. This is just a summary account of what Job is saying here. He says, and now I have become, I have become their song. I am a byword to them. They abhor me. They keep aloof from me. They do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me. Because God has loosed my cord and humbled me, they have cast off all restraint in my presence. On my right hand the rabble rise, they push away my feet, they cast up against me their ways of destruction." They break up my path. They promote my calamity. They need no one to help them. As through a wide breach they come, amid the crash they roll on. Terrors are turned upon me. My honor is pursued as by the wind, and my prosperity has passed away like a cloud. Let's pray. Lord, as we just embark again in the book of Job, I'm just reminded, Lord, of the, when someone's suffering, uh, give us the grace, Lord, as we see a suffering passage, to just sit down with them in their suffering, and to listen, and to behold what the wonder that it is that you're doing. It makes us uncomfortable, it makes us, yeah, Lord, we, don't, we really don't know a lot of times what to do, but those who have suffered in this way, I know this is a deep comfort to them. So, Lord, help us to see what you're showing us today through your word. Give us eyes to hear, ears to, ear, eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that are soft and pliable, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, like we've, um, I want to review just briefly what we've talked about in Job thus far. So, Job was a man of the East. He was a man, a great man of the East, who, would, who, would, who had everything. And at the beginning of the book, it, we're, we're picking up like mid-book. So what I want you to know, though, that is he was a blameless man and that God presents him to, to Satan. And Satan takes all that he has away. God allows all that Job has to be taken, his family, his possessions, his well-being, all that he has. And some lessons that we've seen from Job thus far, thus far have been God's blessing those who, God blesses those from from, God blesses those who do good, and he curses those who do bad. That's not the lesson we've seen. That's, that's the anti-lesson. And, and here's another lesson we've learned. It's not that if I do good, God will bless me, because Job did good. He was blameless. And this is really the structure we've seen of Job. It starts out in the prologue, and then we're somewhere down here, and I'm calling it today Death Valley. And this is, these are the last words of Job we're covering this week and next week. And then what we're going to see is the epilogue, the very last parts of the book. Um, but I want, to, I want to frame it around three atoms. That's what I'm calling it. So we're going to look today at the first atom. And just, just as a way of a reminder, the, the first atom, which is the man of the garden. 
Now, you, you should know this, but humanity began in the garden. Now, Eden, as we heard read this morning, was, was a perfect place, a place of perfection and beauty, a place, a place of peace and tranquility. But when men fell, they moved from the, the high position that God had given them into what I would argue is death and suffering. And we could, we could actually say that since the Garden of Eden, we've lived and all we've ever experienced is Death Valley. Now, that's a very humbling, I think it should be a very humbling reality. I don't know if you've ever been to a third world country, but if you've ever experienced a third world country, you get there and, and you, you see, you walk around in our streets and we, we're almost numb to it because we don't realize the depth of suffering until you get there and you see people that have no home. You see people who, who, who don't literally know what they're having for their next meal. And this is how the majority of the world lives. And, and, and in America, we, we're very easily isolated from this. We, we insulate ourselves to this. And the question is, why the suffering? And how long will it last? Why is Death Valley so long? How long will we live there? And ultimately, the question is, how do we get out? How do we get out of Death Valley? And the title for today is simply, Death Valley, Life Between the Gardens. That's what I'm calling it. And if you, if you get anything from today, get this. It's at the very top of your notes. We live in Death Valley. Between the gardens, the only way out is through the righteous sufferer. We live in Death Valley. Be, between the gardens, and the only way out is through the righteous sufferer. So that's the first Adam I want us to see. Now, I'm going to give us a second Adam. Now, I know biblically there's not a second Adam. I'm not trying to say there's a second Adam. I want you to see, though, that Job, I would argue that Job represents all of humanity in this sense. And he is the second Adam. And it's the Adam, it's the Adam of Death Valley. The Adam of Death Valley. And it's life between the gardens. Now, Death Valley, if you're not aware, Death Valley is a valley in southern, southeastern California. It's one of the lowest points of, in America. And in the summer, it's thought to be one of the hottest places on earth. They call it Death Valley for a very simple reason. If you go there in the summer, you'll die. <laughs> That's why. And nothing really lives in Death Valley. When you look at Death Valley, it's a, it's a parable of sorts of our own present age. And on either side, you have beauty and you have life that grows, but in Death Valley, they have nothing. It's just, it's just death. It's, gar- it's desert in that way. And we live between the two gardens. We live between Eden and we live between the New Jerusalem. Now we pick up Job's account here, and what Job is doing is he's really pleading his final case before God. And I want us to see, we're picking up in chapter 30, but chapter 30 is just a lament. That's all it is. And it probably is going to make us feel uncomfortable at certain moments. And it should. That's what it's meant to do, I think. But in chapter 29, if you remember, I'm not, I don't expect you to, but in chapter 29, we look back at how Job just looked back with, with pining after the new, to how life used to be. But in chapter 30, it's just gloom. There's not any high point of chapter 30. And now, this is not the first time Job's lamented. If you remember in the beginning of the book, he lamented, but it was really more about like, Lord, you took this from me, you took this from me. But this one's way worse. Job's, Job's not giving us any light here. His, his, his concern is far more spiritual. His concern is far more 
social in his problems. He sees there's bigger issues. He, he was saying, I long for a paradisal past, but all I can experience is a hellish present. And I know that we don't experience that on the day-to-day, but that is truly what he's saying here. And I want us to just sit down with someone who's living in this hellish present. And I want us to see suffering. Here's the first point. Suffering. And it's just present misery. This section seems to describe the, the beginning section there, verses um, 1 to about 8, describe Job being taunted by what's called unruly men. Now, in every society, it's like this in our society, it's like this in every society, there are people who an older generation would have called delinquents. Okay, my grandfather would have said, that's a delinquent. That child is not good. That child seeks to be troublesome. He's difficult, he's disobedient, he's uncontrolled. And now Job, when he's talking here, he's ta- now listen to what he says in verse 1. He says, but now they laugh at me. That's, that's these delinquent young men. Men who are younger than I, verse 1, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. Now the word for laugh there is the same word that in, in earlier we saw that Job, it says he laughed toward the poor. And in that way what it meant was he was kind to the poor. But these unrighteous, unruly people, what they're doing is they're now mocking him. A man who was great, a man who was kind to those who were poor, he is now being mocked. So I want us to see several characteristics of these men that are coming to him. The first is they're vain. They're vain. And they gnaw, they gnaw the ground. Listen to what he says in verse 3. Through want and hard hunger, they gnaw the dry ground by night in waste and desolation. These worthless men who he formerly perceived were under divine punishment, he's basically now saying, they're laughing at me. I'm a laughing stock to them. He's describing men who are detestable. He wouldn't even put him over his sheepdogs, the worst of the worst in society. Listen to what they go on to do. He says, by the, by the brush they would gather herbs from the salt mar- marshes and the root of the broom tree. So you're talking about people who were essentially scavengers. And it wasn't because they were in a poor position. It's because they put themselves there. Listen to what he says. They also are dishonorable or dishonor. The reason they're out there, the reason they're out in the wilderness is because they're dishonorable. Society has literally driven them out. Listen to what he goes on and say. They were banished from the community. People shouted at them as though they shout at thieves so that they had to live in the dry stream beds, in the holes of the ground, and among the rocks. And Job's whole point here is they're, they're senseless, they're nameless, and they're worthless men. And you know what he's saying? Those men are laughing at me. A man who was once beautiful, a man who was once honored, the most dishonored now are, are persecuting him. So they're vain, they're dishonorable, they're also degenerate. They're degenerate, which is senseless and nameless. Listen to what he says in verse 7 and 8. He says, among the bushes they bray, under the nettles they huddle together, a senseless and nameless brood. They have been whipped out of the land, or wiped out of the land. He's describing men here who are more highly praised than he is. If you remember where Job has been and where he's at now, as we've seen in Job, Job's not just about, well, you should just do better. 
You should see Job and you should think, well, thank God I'm not like Job. Like, that's, that's not the point. When we see Job, we're meant to see someone else. When we see Job, we're not meant to just look at Job and say, wow, I'm glad my life doesn't look like that. We're meant to see Job and look through the eyes of faith at Job and see someone else, which is mainly Jesus. Because Job is not just exemplary, he's also prophetic. Listen to what Hebrews 5.8, this is what he describes. This is describing the Lord Jesus. It says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And now, this is not saying that Jesus was not the perfect son of God, but in his earthly body, he had to learn what it was to suffer. And in that way, he was made perfect. And this has some applications for us. Let me give you just a couple. If, if you're a Christian here today, in the same way that Job is persecuted and we see the Lord Jesus persecuted, you will be persecuted. Now, it may be in subtle ways. It may be in subtle ways, like snide remarks. Matthew Henry, he put it really well. He said, we should not be cast down if we are despised, reviled, and hated by wicked men. We should look to Jesus who endured the contradiction of sinners. If you're a Christian here today, you will be persecuted. And we see in this rabble that comes to Job, people who come to him and hate him because he was righteous. Like, let me give you some examples. Like when you walk in obedience and raising your children around unbelievers and they make disgusting remarks in return. Or, or you try to walk in holiness in some way and another person accuses you of being holier than thou. This persecution doesn't always look like being thrown in prison. It happens in many ways. And I hope you're not surprised when it comes. Now notice what he goes on to say. So, he, we, also see, so we see the suffering, the present misery of Job. We also see the humiliation, the, the taunt song, I'm calling it. The humiliation, the taunt song. Verse 9 says, um, And now I have become their song. I am a byword to them. Now another translation I think is helpful in this. The NET, it says, um, And now I have become their taunt song. I have become a byword among them. Basically, it's like saying, Job has become the one that they say, You're like a Job. If they want to tell you how bad of a person you are, you're a Job. That's what he's saying. I'm, I'm their humiliation. He's the mantra of shame. He's the notorious Job. And they're basically saying now that when a person is cursed, you've become Job. That's what you're like. And it's two, two things I want you to see. They're utter disgust, and they keep away. So they look in verse 10. It says, they abhor me. They keep aloof from me. They do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me. And then going on, it says they also distance themselves. So they see the, the abomination they believe he is. And they say to themselves, let's keep ourselves. Don't, don't go near him. He's so disgusting. But I want you to remind you, as you're hearing even what Job's saying, Job was declared a righteous man. Job was called a righteous man. But the most unrighteous now in the society are saying, yeah, keep away from him. He's an abomination. But notice how he says, this is what's interesting about the passage, though. 
Notice down to verse 11 what he says. So how does this happen? How does something like this come about? What he says in verse 11 is very striking. He says, because God has loosed my cord and humbled me, they have cast off restraint in my presence. So Job's not just blaming them. He's not saying, well, yeah, they're just a bunch of losers. That's why I'm in this situation. He says, no, God has loosed my cord. He has humbled me, and they now cast off restraint in my presence. We start to see the rabble, the rabble rise, the enemy's, the enemy's hatred toward him. But it's not because of them. He says, it's because the Lord has put me in this position. Go to verse 12 and through 15. He says, On my right hand the rabble rise. They push away my feet. They cast up against me their ways of destruction. They break up my path. They promote calamity. They need no one to help them. As through a wide breach they come, amid the crash they roll on. Terrors are turned upon me. My honor is pursued as by the wind, and my prosperity or my salvation has passed away like a cloud. So Job has become a humiliation. He's their taunt song. And he's taunted by men who are worthless, and they're the rabble who've come around him and have taken away his honor. His honor is now gone. He's empty as the wind, and his salvation is removed. It's like a vapor. And again, when we see this, we have to turn our eyes, we have to look at the text, and with the eyes of faith, see that Job's not just about Job. When we look at Job and we see the suffering of a righteous man, we need to look beyond Job. He's prophetic in this sense. He points forward to someone greater than himself. Now, I've just presented Death Valley as the life between the gardens, but the maximally expressed suffering is in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was likewise presented as the mantra of shame. He was presented with utter disgust. Listen, listen to the picture that the gospel is right. You, you think, you're probably wondering to yourself, well, Daniel, this wasn't like Job. This, Jesus wasn't like Job. And I want to say, listen to what the gospel writers say. Matthew 27, it was just read this morning. Then the two robbers were crucified with him. Okay, so you have the, the two most degenerate people in society on either side of Jesus. One on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So you have thugs, you have rebels, the same, the same experience Job has right here. Thugs and rebels curse at him. And also the chief priests, look at, listen to what it goes on to say in 41 to 44. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders, like we've seen of Job's friends, mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him. If he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers, that is the most degenerate in the society, verse 44, were crucified with him, also reviling him in the same way. Do you notice that? Here's, here's a man who stands and is the righteous one of Israel. And what does he get? The same sort of suffering. 
Job points us forward to the ultimate sufferer, the God-man, Jesus Christ, God the Son incarnate, who came into the world not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. See, here's the difference. Job didn't choose what he's experiencing. We look at Job and we think, well, he wouldn't have wanted this. And the marvelous difference is, Jesus looked at us, at sinners, and he stood in the place of sinners. In the, the righteous stood in the place of the unrighteous. The one who, who didn't have a choice, which was Job, is juxtaposed or is compared to the Lord Jesus who did choose. He looked at me and you. If you're a Christian here today, he looked at me and you and he said, I'm going to suffer on that one's behalf. No matter how bad that one suffered, no matter how unrighteous that one is, I'm going to suffer on their behalf. Not to make people suffer, but to suffer on their behalf. So when we think about God most high, we should not just think, oh, he's just there, just just pulling the puppet strings, making people suffer. No, 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 no. He, God, the God-man comes and he stands as the righteous sufferer in the place of sinners. Now, this, this means some things for us, and it means simply this, that we should expect nothing else for us. If the author of our faith chose the path of suffering, why would we ever avoid it? We need to reject any form of Christianity that is merely an easy believism and that requires nothing. Now, I'm not calling us to be martyrs for martyrdom's sake. I'm not calling us to be Buddhist monks who mutilate themselves. But I want to, I want to acknowledge that the call, the call of the gospel is not easy. It will cost you everything. Luke 9, listen to the words of Jesus again in another place. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? To turn from our sins and trust Christ will cost us everything. And brothers and sisters, that is the only way out of Death Valley. No matter what anyone else wants to tell you, we live in Death Valley between the gardens and the only way out is through the righteous sufferer. But as we unite ourselves, let's be clear about something. As we unite ourselves to the righteous sufferer, suffering will come. It, it's not, a, it's not, an ob, it's not a, like a secondary optional thing. It will come. So that's the second Adam. So the, we saw the first Adam, which is the man in the garden. And now we see the second Adam, which is the man in the, the desert. I want us to see now the last Adam. And I'm calling it the last Adam, the necessity of suffering for the righteous. That's the necessity of the righteous suffering. Now, everything in, in us does not like that. When I tell you a righteous sufferer, that sounds very mm, oxymoronic. That doesn't, doesn't really make sense. The righteous aren't supposed to suffer. But I want you to see the necessity of the righteous suffering. And we're going to look at it through Job, and then we're going to see the Lord Jesus in it. So I want you to see the first part, which is hopelessness, the necessity of silence, hopelessness. Listen to what Job says in 16 through 17. He says, and now my soul is poured out within me. 
Days of affliction have taken hold of me. Not my, the night racks my bones, and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. Job's whole inner being is being poured out before him, and there will soon be nothing left for lamenting. Listen to what he goes on and saying in verse 18 and 19. He says, With great force my garment is disfigured. It binds me like the collar of my tunic. And God has cast me into the mire. I have become like dust and ashes. And notice again, Job does not say, God, you never wanted this to happen to me. Notice that. That's how, and I think that's unfortunately how we speak a lot of times. God, you never wanted this to happen to me. Satan is the one doing this. And in some senses, yes, that's true. But God has never lost control. Job says that God is the one who's cast him into the mud. And he says, verse 20 and 21, he says, I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. You have turned, me, you have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. Job is simply saying, in my biggest need, Lord, here I am in my biggest need possible. And God's response is silence. And he says in verse 22 and 23, he says, you lift me up on the wind, you make me ride on it, you toss me about in the roar of the storm. For I know that you will bring me to death and to the house appointed for all living. I want you to see the darkened days, and this will be our last section, and we'll close. The darkened days, and then darkness came. Look what he says in 24 to 26. He says, Yet does not one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hand and in his disaster cry for help. Did not I weep for those whose, hand, whose day was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? But when I hoped for good, evil came. And when I waited for light, darkness came. Now I want you to remember what Job's system of thought was formerly. If this is your first time here, it probably, his former system of belief was simply, if I put good in, I'll get good out. And he's simply saying, I've put good in, Lord, but you're not giving me good out. But when I hoped for good, evil came. And I have a question, just one simple question. What are we to do with this? What are we to do with this? When we look at Job, we have to see the prophetic nature that Job is. We can't just simply look at Job and think, man, these are really some good questions. They are good questions. But they're like Job, again, is like a shadow. And the shadow casts upon the substance, which is Christ. I love what Christopher Ash he said. It's a longer quote, but I, I want to read it. It's helpful for us. He says, yet at a deeper level, Job is right. For his sufferings foreshadow the pain of a man who had to go right down to death, even death on a cross, before his cries would be answered. There is a terrible divine necessity about redemptive suffering. God is doing something so ultimately wonderful that an unanswered prayer is the necessary price of achieving it. And Job begins to experience this. You recall our Lord in the garden. What does he cry out? Lord, if there's any other way, if there's any other way than going to the cross to suffer for sinners, let it happen. And his prayer was unanswered. And that is the best news here for us today. 
There is literally no better news than that. That God was silent to the prayer of his servant. And Christopher Ash again, he goes on and he says, There is a divine necessity about the sufferings of Job. There is something so deeply necessary that it justifies injustice and unanswered prayer to the righteous man. How can it be, though? How can it be that way? Let me give you an example. And if, you, if you're familiar with the um, 1849 gold rush, what's called the gold rush of the 49ers, it's where we get the football team, the 49ers, the San Francisco 49ers. But there, there was a group that was heading out for the gold rush in California. And on their way there, there was a leader of one of the wagon trains. And he was, the leader's, the leader's logic was, we'll go, only go as fast as the slowest wagon. Now, wagons are kind of like cars, I suppose, in that way. That if you're moving at the slowest pace of the slowest wagon, that means you're moving really, really slow. But there came a point where the people were really, really frustrated. They're like, man... This leader is like slow. He's a slow poke. He is slowly moving along. But there came news. One of the, a young man rode into the camp. And he basically said, don't worry, guys. We have a shortcut. Let us give you the shortcut across the desert. And the group who was dissatisfied, you can imagine how they felt if you've ever followed, followed a slow driver. We, we don't get frustrated at slow drivers, right? No, nobody understands that. So you understand the frustration of a slow driver multiplied by 10. So you hear word of a shortcut, right? And the first thing in your mind is, we got to go. we got to get out of this slow wagon train. But what they didn't realize was that the shortcut led them directly into Death Valley. The shortcut, the shortcut, quote-unquote, led these men from the original train and took them an extra four months. And it actually led to many of their deaths. And this is very parabolic for us. Because in a lot of ways, we, we look at a passage like this and we, we see the suffering that's required of the Lord Jesus. We see, we see Job, then we see the Lord Jesus, but there's a temptation for us to think, here's a shortcut. Here's, here's a gospel that will come to you that's easy. You don't need, it doesn't require anything. The shortcut would be an easy path away from the call of Christ to follow an easier path. The shortcut would, would only want the blessings of being part of a Christian community without the pain. Let me give you an example the blessings of community without actually having to bear the burdens of one another. That's the kind of shortcut I'm talking about. Because the gospel doesn't call us to just be saved and then just float around in heaven somewhere or even float around on earth in some way. It's also the call to suffer. And what Job shows us is a shadowy picture of Christ, a shadowy picture of Christ who was answered with silence when, it, when he cried out, take this cup from me. And brothers and sisters, when, when we are answered with silence, I want to be very, very clear. It is not, it is not God's curse upon us. It is, it is not God's curse upon us. And I think sometimes it's very easy to think that it is. When we are answered with silence, we have not been the first one who's been answered with silence. And the call of the Christian is the call to partake in this suffering. Now turn real quick with me. I want you to, I want you to see this, not just from Job. I want you to see this from the New Testament. Romans 8. Turn real quick to Romans 8. And we've just preached through Romans 8 um, just a couple of weeks ago, Romans 8, 28 through uh, 32, but I want you to see before that, before the glory of that, I want you to see this, what, what Paul writes. He 
He says in verse 18 of, of Romans 8, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, now notice, I want you to notice something about verse 18. He doesn't say, for I consider that, don't worry, you don't really have to suffer. Let me give you a little parenthesis. Jesus came, so suffering is just taken away. That's not what he says. He acknowledges it. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, put in parentheses around that, all that is Death Valley are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, I want you to notice something, and I think there's, this can happen sometimes, that we can be so triumphalistic about the victory of Christ that we begin to think that the glory is for right now, and it's not. Notice he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. So his whole point is, there's glory coming far greater than the glory. If you go back to that you picture, there was the glory of Eden. We live in Death Valley. And he's saying that the glory, though, that's coming for those who are Christians is so much better that it's going to make Death Valley like nothing. And that's really hard to comprehend. If you've suffered at any length, that's really hard to comprehend. But this is what he's calling us to believe. Now go, go to verse 19, what he says. He says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So it's not just you and me. It's all creation. For creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And his whole point here is it's not just me and you who are suffering. It's everyone around us. We are all in Death Valley. And the question is, how do we get out? How do we get out? I love what, again, Christopher Ash, he's very helpful in, in Job. He says, in a similar way, it is yet the same for Christian people today. When God remains silent, or when God remains silent in answer to urgent cries, it is not that he does not hear but rather that it is somehow necessary for us to cry in vain and wait in hope until he achieves in us and in, this wor- in his world what he wills to achieve. And his whole point here is simply, the answer might not come. You may cry out urgently, and if the answer doesn't come, we know there's still hope coming. Brothers and sisters, we live in Death Valley between the gardens, and the only way out is through the righteous sufferer. But Paul basically makes this point. He goes forward. And just read down verses 20, 22. He says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. I have not given birth personally. That's a very weird question. But in 2023, it's probably a necessary thing. I've not given birth personally. But I can tell you it's very, very painful. And he says that the whole creation is groaning together in the pains of childbirth. And he says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eager for it, eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now notice what he says in verse 24. He says, for in this hope we are saved. So that's not something that happens right now. As we gather, as we meet, it's in the hope of the gospel, of the glory that's coming. It's in the hope of the redeemed Savior that has come to redeem sinners. He says, for in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is not seen is not hope. 
For who hopes for what he sees? And his whole point is, we don't see it right now, brothers and sisters. Job didn't see it then. We especially don't see it now. But one day, one day you will see it. Christopher Ash again, listen to what he says. Ultimately, we shall see that there is a good purpose and a great purpose achieved by these sufferings. But not now. And not yet. I want to end on this illustration. I've used it before. But I want to use it again because it's just so helpful. I, and I, again, I've used it before, but it's very, I hope you can recall it to mind in moments of darkness. I don't know if you've ever had a bad dream, but I oftentimes will have terrible nightmares that will be like, somebody's breaking into my house or my wife dies or something ridiculous. And in those moments, it's, it's awful. You, you know the sinking feeling that you feel in a dream where you're dying or being killed or something ridiculous. But the beauty that it is to wake up from a terrible nightmare is that you realize that it was all, it's all over. It wasn't real in that sense. And in the same way, there is a promise of heaven. Notice what he says in verse 24. For in this hope, we are saved. And the hope of the scriptures is that one day, all that has been made wrong in Death Valley will be made right in Christ Jesus. And that's, again, for the person who suffered, you, that's, that's great relief. And if you haven't suffered here today, one day you will. And maybe that would be the day you could turn back to these sermons on Job and think, what, what a relief, what a joy to know that someday, someday there will be a hope that we don't see right now but of great glory to come in Christ Jesus. So I want to 